You are listening to Togeek Tree News number 65, recorded for Wednesday, April 4th, 2012. You are listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeek2me.us. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek Talk Geek to Me. And now the tech roundup. From EFF.org, dated March 30th, 2012, by Katitza Rodriguez and Myra Sutton, French Constitutional Court bans law enforcement use of National Biometric ID Database. Last week, the Conseil Constitutionnel, the highest authority on the French Constitution, declared the provisions of a law permitting judicial and police use of a centralized National ID Database to be unconstitutional. 200 members of the French Parliament referred the law to the Conseil following the law's adoption on March the 6th. The Conseil determined that the use of the centralized database was incompatible with France's fundamental rights, including the right to privacy and the presumption of innocence. The proposed legislation mandated compulsory civilian ID cards contained a chip designed to store personal and biometric information, including home addresses, marital status, eye color, and fingerprints. Proponents argued that the biometric ID card would be used to stop honest folk from becoming the victims of identity fraud. In fact, the law would have enabled the Honest Folk database to be used for criminal and judicial purposes. The Conseil correctly determined that such uses constituted a serious incursion into the right to private life, disproportionate to the law's stated objective. Another provision in the law would have allowed for a second optional chip to be used for online authentication and e-commerce transactions. The Consul determined that such use would require too broad a range of personal data to be collected without any guarantees of security and confidentiality. Furthermore, it condemned the law's vague conditions for authenticating individuals, especially minors. EFF welcomes the Consul's decision to strike out substantial parts of the legislation to protect privacy. Nevertheless, the Consul should explain the unmotivated reasoning behind leaving significant anti-privacy portions of the law intact, namely biometric data collection for the purpose of preventing ID fraud. The argument for biometrics is predicated on the flawed assumption that a national biometric ID scheme will prevent identity fraud. Massive databases already invite security breaches, and a biometrics database of this scale is a honeypot of sensitive data vulnerable to exploitation. Such a data breach is not just costly, it is irreversible. You cannot change your fingerprints or your irises. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From EFF.org, dated March 21st by Trevor Tim, NSA chief appears to deny ability to warrantlessly wiretap despite evidence. The former NSA official held his thumb and forefinger close together. We are like that far from a turnkey totalitarian state, he says. Quoted from Wired Magazine, April 2012. Last week in Wired Magazine, noted author James Bamford reported on an expensive 
$2 billion data center being built by the NSA in Utah that will house an almost unimaginable amount of data on its servers, along with the world's fastest supercomputers. Part of the purpose of this new center, according to Bamford, is to store all forms of communication, including the complete contents of private emails, cell phone calls, and Google searches, as well as all sorts of personal data trails, parking receipts, travel itineraries, bookstore purchases, and other digital pocket litter. In the wide article, Bamford interviewed former NSA official William Binney, a crypto mathematician largely responsible for automating the agency's worldwide eavesdropping network. Binney further shed light on the NSA's warrantless wiretapping program first exposed by the New York Times in 2005, and the subject of EFF's long-running suit, Jewel vs. NSA, which challenges the constitutionality of the NSA's program. The NSA claims it only has access to emails and phone calls of the non-U.S. citizens overseas, but Binney provides more detail to the many previous reports by the New York Times, USA Today, New Yorker, and many more. That program indeed targets U.S.-based email records. In the 11 years since 9-11, Binney estimates 15 to 20 trillion transactions have been collected and stored by the NSA. From the Wired article, quote, he explains that the agency could have installed its tapping gear at the nation's cable landing stations. The more than two dozen sites on the periphery of the U.S. where fiber optic cables come ashore. If it had taken that route, the NSA would have been able to limit its eavesdropping to just international communications, which at the same time was all that was allowed under the U.S. law. Instead, it chose to put the wiretap rooms at key junction points throughout the country, large windowless buildings known as switchers thus gaining access to not just the international communications, but also to most of the domestic traffic flowing through the U.S. The network of intercept stations goes far beyond the single room in an AT&T building in San Francisco exposed by a whistleblower in 2006. I think there's 10 to 20 of them, Binney says. That's not just San Francisco. They have them in the middle of the country and also on the East Coast. The director of the NSA, General Keith Alexander, testified at a House subcommittee hearing Tuesday, and Representative Hank Johnson, Democrat from Georgia, grilled him on the details of the wired story. He appears to deny the main points of the article, including that the NSA was intercepting emails, phone calls, Google searches, and phone records of individuals in the United States, as well as the technical capabilities of the program software described by Benny. But, perhaps more strangely, Alexander also seemed to claim the NSA did not have the technical ability to collect Americans' emails and Internet traffic even if it weren't required to get a warrant. General Alexander, quote, In the United States, we'd have to go through the FBI process a warrant to get that and serve it to somebody to actually get it. Representative Johnson, but you do have the capability of doing it? General Alexander, not in the U.S., Representative Johnson, not without a warrant? General Alexander, we don't have the technical insights in the United States. In other words, you have to have something to intercept or some way of doing that, either by going to a service provider with a warrant, or you have to be collecting in that area. We're not authorized to collect, nor do we have the equipment in the United States to actually collect that kind of information. Emphasis added. In our lawsuits, EFF has provided evidence that the NSA operated a monitoring center out of AT&T switching facility in San Francisco that has the ability to do exactly what General Alexander says the NSA can't. In light of all the evidence, it is hard to take comfort from General Alexander's apparent denial.
In previous discussions of the warrantless wiretapping program, the government has used crabbed and unusual definitions of words to make misleading statements that also seem like denials but turn out to be largely word games. In one prominent example, then Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence Michael Hayden said in a 2006 statement, quote, Let me talk for a few minutes also about what this program is not. It is not a drift net over Dearborn or Lackawanna or Fremont grabbing conversations. End of quote. Later, when confronted with evidence of a wider Driftnet program during his confirmation hearing, he explained, quote, I pointedly and consciously downshifted the language I was using. When I was talking about a Driftnet over Lackawanna or Fremont or other cities, I switched from the word communications to a much more specific and unarguably accurate conversation, unquote. Notably, the NSA's interpretation of what it means to collect communications seems to be quite limited. Under Department of Defense regulations, information is considered to be collected only after it has been received for use by an employee of a DOD intelligence component, and data acquired by electronic means is collected only when it has been processed into intelligible form. So, under this definition, if the communications of millions of ordinary Americans were gathered and stored indefinitely in Utah, it would not be collected until the NSA officially accepts, in some manner, such information for use within that component. The illegality of warrantless wiretapping, however, does not depend on when the NSA officially accepts their information or processes it into intelligible form, whatever that means. Americans privacy and constitutional protections do and should not hinge on word games. We are looking forward to establishing in the Jewel versus NSA case a simpler proposition that the government can't spy on anyone, much less everyone, without a warrant. From TechDebt.com, dated March 30, 2012, by Mike Masnick. Trademark lawyers push for crazy new domain rules, making it easy for them to take away others' domains. IP maximalists now seem to be targeting ICANN as yet another way to overclaim their rights and block legitimate domains from existing. As we've been discussing, there have been several fights concerning the new generic top-level domains, where we've seen folks like the entertainment industry demand extra special measures to keep them from being used to infringe copyrights, but the trademark folks may be going even further. We already have the somewhat flawed UDRP, Uniform Domain Dispute Resolution Process System, for trademark holders to try and claim the rights over a domain. This process lets trademark holders go through an arbitration process if they feel someone is abusing a trademark in a domain. In the past, we've discussed how this process is pretty sloppy, but it still heavily favors trademark holders. As in many arbitration situations, the big companies who bring back business to the arbitrators magically seem to win quite frequently. However, that's just not enough for these trademark holders. Last year, for these new GTLDs, they were also able to establish a separate process, the URS, Uniform Rapid Suspension System, which everyone was told would only be used for the most egregious cases of trademark infringement. The cases where it's so totally obvious that the domain in question infringes that the whole process can be cheap and streamlined. However, before this process has even been really tested, trademark holders are trying very, very hard to basically lower the standards on URS and broaden the reach of it, such that it more or less replaces the UDRP process and thus makes it 
a system that lets trademark holders seize the domains of those they accuse of infringement very cheaply, with minimal review, and to also block certain words from being registered in domains. Even more incredible, they're abusing an ICANN comment process to push this plan, which ICANN had earlier rejected. All of this came out recently in a letter to ICANN's board, raising concerns about this effort. ICANN had opened up a comment period for a specific issue having to do with GTLDs, and the trademark folks went hog-wild, asking for all these other things, including lowering the standard for when a simplified URS process sees domains quickly, as questions later, process can be put in place. Originally, the bar had been set high so that this process could only be used in truly egregious cases, where there was no question that the domain was infringing. But the proposal sought to lower the standard such that it's the same as the UDRP standard effectively stepping in and replacing UDRP, changing the already agreed-upon URS system such that domains that go through the process aren't just suspended, but transferred to the trademark holder. In other words, rather than just shutting down a domain, this FastPass system would simply turn the domains over to the trademark bullies. Saying that the URS process, which was developed just for these new TLDs, should also be expanded to cover the most important TLD of all, COM. That's right. That's the goal in all of this, to actually make it much, much easier for trademark bullies to completely shut down and gain control of domains that they don't like others to use, and to do it cheaply with very little review. And they did all this by abusing a comment process that has nothing to do with these issues. And despite the fact that earlier hard-fought battles over these issues came out with them on the losing side, but this is how IP maximalists work. They just keep trying every way possible to get the same ridiculous rules made in their favor. From AMD.com, press release, AMD launches new platform for dedicated web hosting providers. AMD today announced the latest solution as part of its ongoing web cloud initiative with the launch of the new AMD Opteron 3200 series processor. Dedicated web hosting customers seeking enterprise class reliability have a new choice that delivers great value with up to 38% better price performance and up to 19% less power per core than the competition. Error correcting code memory and server reliability features at a low price point. Fast hardware payback in as few as seven months. Hosting fees can cover hardware costs up to 14% quicker than with the competition. Efficient economics for the cloud with twice the core density per rack. Later on in the article, AMD has delivered on its promise of a low power single socket solution that brings server functionality with desktop economics. The AMD Opteron 3000 series platform is targeted to the dense, power-efficient, one-processor web hosting web server market, available in either a 4- or 8-core CPU. The AMD Opteron 3200 series processor is shipping today on platforms from MSI, Tyen, Fujitsu, and Dell. Based on the bulldozer core, the AMD Opteron 3000 series platform leverages socket AM3 Plus and provides customers with the core savings associated with a desktop-like infrastructure, yet still offers server class reliability, enterprise class silicon validation testing, security features, and server OS certification. Some technical details, 45 watts to 65 watts TDP, 2.7 gigahertz base frequency up to 3.7 gigahertz frequency, 
two DDR3 memory channels supporting ECC memory, 1,333, 1,600, and 1,866 megahertz memory speeds, up to 32 gigabytes memory capacity, up to two DIMMs per memory channel, a total cache of 16 megabytes for 8-core and 8 megabytes for 4-core, L2 cache up to 8 megabytes, and L3 cache up to 8 megabytes. Editorial comment, okay, why is this significant? Because servers are often sold in multi-processor CPUs, that is, multiple chips, each chip having several cores. Now, if you just don't need that kind of a power in, in that particular server, for the past few years, your choice was to buy a server-class motherboard, which is industrial duty, and half-populate it which was a costly proposition. With this move, they're going back to making one processor server-class motherboards, which means that all the people who didn't need that power for the past few years were forced to use outside services, can now bring those small server needs back into the organization. And, of course, the usual disclaimers apply to my knowledge level on this matter. But it's a significant step back to enabling people with lower needs to get server class hardware if they so need it. And editorial comment. From torrentfreak.com, dated March 27, 2012 by Ernesto, RapidShare declared legal in court with a twist. In the aftermath of the mega-upload shutdown, people have been keeping a close eye on court cases involving other file hosting services, RapidShare included. During the past several years, RapidShare has made tremendous efforts to cooperate with copyright holders and limit copyright infringements, but this couldn't prevent the company from getting involved in a handful of lawsuits against rights holders. Two weeks ago, a press release published by copyright holders claimed that RapidShare had suffered an enormous defeat in court. However, now that the court has published its final decision, RapidShare is claiming a victory of its own. In the verdict of RapidShare's legal dispute against the music rights group GEMA, the Higher Regional Court in Hamburg explicitly recognizes that RapidShare's business model is legal. This news is music to the ears of the file hoster. Quote, for the first time, the Hamburg Higher Regional Court has filed our line of argument on key points and has conferred legal legitimacy on our service, just as other courts have done over the considerable period of time. This is a significant result for us. End of quote, said Repetier CEO Alexandra Zwingli. The court further ruled that RapidShare has no obligation to proactively monitor files that are uploaded by its users. Instead, the company has to monitor external sites that link to copyright files on RapidShare and ensure that these files become inaccessible. This is not a problem, according to the CyberLocker. Quote, that is exactly what RapidShare has already been doing for many years. If the anti-abuse team identifies a download link on such pages which results in a file that has clearly been published illegally being on the company's servers, the file in question is immediately blocked. End of quote. Aside from monitoring forums and linking sites for infringing links, RapidShare has made several other adjustments to its service to decrease unlawful use. Most recently, the company limited the download speeds of free users to drive away pirates. Nevertheless, 
RapidShare objects to the fact that they have to carry out this monitoring based on a court order, and they will therefore take the case to the Supreme Court. Quote, we are doing this of our own accord because we have a strong interest in ensuring that our service remains clean. We believe that being obliged to carry out such actions is questionable from a legal perspective. For this reason, we will appeal the verdict to clarify the issue of proactive monitoring of external websites at the highest judicial level, end of quote, Zwingli said. The eventual decision of the Supreme Court may have massive implications, not only for RapidShare, but also for the many other file hosting services that operate in Germany. Other headlines in the news. To read these stories, follow the link in the show notes. Power Management of Online Data Intensive Services. This is a link in James Hamilton's excellent technical perspectives blog on whether or not large-scale data centers should oversell their electrical usage. News from techdirt.com, audio of Moment of Clarity number 126, HavanaTimes.org, and allgov.com, used under arranged permission. News from EFF.org and torrentfreak.com, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution license. News from GPNYS.com and AMD.com or press releases. News from WLCentral.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is dgtgtm, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.